Welcome to Summit Podcasts. This is Michael Bond. Today I'm speaking with pastors Todd Stanley and Colin McKnight. Todd is the associate pastor at our Indiana location, and Colin is the campus pastor at our Blairsville location. In this episode, we are discussing part four of the sermon series titled The Gospel According To. This series is designed to compare the true gospel with other archetypal ideas set down in the culture. This particular message is in reference to the beliefs promoted in songs by the Beatles. Much like Harry Potter from last week, I don't think the Beatles require much of an introduction. They were an English rock band formed in Liverpool in 1960, and they really took the world by storm with their music. We want these sermon discussions to function much like the drive home from church. Imagine you just heard the message and you're talking it over with your friends and family. That unpacking process is what we hope to achieve here. In this conversation, we talk about whether or not there's anything that can separate you from God's love. Among other things, we discuss how to love people who are difficult to love. We also talk about the value of wisdom and how the pursuit of knowledge can achieve both great and destructive outcomes. Anyway, I found this discussion profitable and an excellent accompaniment to the sermon itself. If you missed part four of the gospel according to, then I encourage you to watch it on demand at summitpa.church. As always, the audio from this sermon is available right here on summitpodcasts.church. Anyway, I'm so thankful to have you here today. So without further delay, I bring you Colin McKnight and Todd Stanley. I'm here with Colin McKnight and Todd Stanley. This is week four of the Gospel According to Sermon discussion. So what we do here is we play clips of Pastor Mel from the sermon, and then we kind of unpack the deeper points of it. So let's just go ahead and jump right in with clip number one. This is going to be about whether or not anything can separate us from God's love. In Romans chapter 8, Paul tells the Roman church this. He says, can anything separate us from Christ's love? Can it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? And I love the way he puts this because in other translations, what it says is, can this separate us? Can this separate us? But this helps us understand a little differently because how many of us have felt when we're dealing with a difficult situation, God, do you really love me? We begin to question God's love when things don't go perfectly in our lives, when things are a little amiss, when, when everything doesn't fall perfectly into place, we begin to go, well, wait a second, God, do you love me? And Paul is answering that question. And if anybody could answer that question, it's Paul. Because Paul had been, in, in the cause of Christ, Paul had been shipwrecked and beaten and left for dead and imprisoned. And, and I'm sure at some point he must have said, God, do you really love me? But he kept coming back to this idea that, no, God's love is bigger than all this. God's love is bigger than my circumstance. Just because I'm dealing with a tough situation doesn't mean God isn't good and God doesn't love me. God is good and God loves us. So Paul is considered something of an authority on this topic because of how much he suffered for the gospel. I mean, he wasn't whispering sweet nothings out of ignorance on the topic of suffering. Uh, So when you think about suffering and difficult seasons, what are some ways that you personally stay connected to the reality of God's love? And maybe what are some ways that others might achieve this durability in their connection to God's love? And I think I, I say that word durability very specifically here because it seems to me that would be the desired outcome, to have your connection to God's love be durable through the highs and through the lows, that sort of thing. What do you do personally and how would you advise others to do that? Go ahead, Colin. Okay, come on, yeah. let's go. So hold on, the very question of 
is there anything that can separate us from God's love is what we're addressing here. And I think what we've already assumed is that it has to do something with us. So what Paul is addressing is persecution, trials, tribulation, uh, difficulties in life or a tough season or whatever cannot separate us from God's love, not angels, nor demons, nor heights, nor depths, right? Um, none of those things. But as individuals, we must realize that oftentimes we decide to separate ourselves from God's love. And so if we're not meditating on God's word, if we're not spending time in his presence, if we're not actively pursuing, then oftentimes we find ourselves drifting back away. Not that we can ever cancel God's love. It is still there when we pursue it and we come for it and we receive it. Um, again, at the beginning of Romans chapter eight, it's addressing those who are in Christ Jesus, those that have put their trust and their faith in him. And that is a ongoing process of building yourself up in the word. Again, kind of getting to your question there, durability and, and having a, a consistent faith that allows you to um, stay kind of even keel when things are upside down or when things are in extremes or life is a roller coaster. Um, you also have to have good counsel of a community. Um, listen, people say I can be a Christian outside of church. And we, we challenge this often by saying, yes, but you're probably not going to be the healthiest Christian outside mm -hmm. of a church family. And so some of those elements help uh, there too. Todd is like winding up here. No, no, I'm just listening to you. Oh, okay. But I mean, I, I think it's important. I was talking with someone about this actually, I think yesterday, uh, about how that suffering or trouble or hardship, you know, whatever term you want to use, um, should be the thing that assures us of God's love for us, not the opposite. Mm -hmm. Right? We, and I'm, maybe I'm going to jump into the, the weeds here a little bit. I don't know, but. I know where you're going. I, I think I know where you're going. Get it. Go get it. Well, so even when we talk about free will and sovereignty, we're going to, let's get into all of that, right? Let's go. So, so here's the thing. Love cannot be experienced outside the context of choice. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't know what it feels like to love or be loved if I don't have agency in that relationship. Mm, yeah. That reality in itself makes trouble, makes heartache, makes a possibility. Right. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it is God's faithfulness in the midst of those things that should be the assurance of his love. We sinned, we rebelled, we, all of us have broken God's law. All of us have, you know, we, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, all of us, right, have, and yet God loves us, comes to us anyway in the midst of that. It's, and it's so like, how could I understand the beauty, the wonder, the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of God's love mm -hmm. if I did not understand or have a context for the converse? Yeah. And so I, the, the, and then to know that when we look at the cross, we don't see a God who is separated from or absent from our suffering, but a God who comes and suffers alongside us, yeah, yeah. who suffers with us, who like gets down in the mud as it were. And, you know, and 
So I don't think that suffering should be the thing that causes us to question God's love for us. But for those of us who know Christ and have fellowship and like know the fellowship of the suffering of Christ, that like those should be the things that confirm God's mm-hmm. love for us, that he is with me here. He is Emmanuel. And if we're not experiencing it in that way, then we honestly like it's like, well, Lord, what is, what is it that I am not? believing properly here? What is it that's misaligned in my understanding of who you are? Or what is it that, that you know, what, what interpretive lens am I viewing this through that is not in alignment with your word? And help me, Lord, to see the truth of your word and the truth of who you are, and help me to experience your loving presence in the middle of my trouble. Man, that's special. That's good. Yeah, it seems to me that suffering unlocks a new plane of good, P-L-A-N-E of good. Yeah. Like a whole new dimension of good. So uh, one analogy that I've used for this is a recliner in a cool room with like a nice cold glass of water feels pretty good, just naturally. But okay, so let's say that you spend all day working in a hot parking lot in 110 degrees. Well, then the recliner in the cool room with the glass of water is going to feel really good. It's going to feel so good that dimension of good is not available to you unless you first go through the suffering. Right. And I'm seeing like, for instance, the gospel is not possible if, if there aren't, if there's no suffering, uh, you know, the sacrifice of Christ, why, why do it? Why need it? You know, if, if we don't have free will, if we don't have free will to rebel, to, to usher in the fall, then, then we don't get to see God's love on full display in the crucifixion. And so, uh, you know, people think like, well, if God's omniscient and omnipotent, why didn't he create a world without suffering? Well, maybe the best of all possible worlds is one that includes suffering because in a world where there's suffering, redemption is also possible. Yeah. Redemption mm-hmm. from that suffering. So I would say, I would say the best of all possible worlds is a, is a world that includes the possibility of suffering, right? Um, there was a tempter in the garden. God could have created the garden without a tempter there. He could have created a garden with only one tree, right? Like there's only the tree of life. There's not a tree of knowledge of good and evil. God could have created that if he had so chosen, right? But that doesn't allow for the possibility of relationship. Mm -hmm. Mm. It doesn't allow for the possibility of love. And all of us, on a human level, we understand the, the beauty that there is in, like, my wife, Jennifer, and I, we choose to love each other. And there's a depth of relationship that you get there that you don't get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and that, according to Scripture, that relationship between husband and wife should be a reflection of the relationship between God and His people. That, that there is a, and there, so there's a depth of love that is possible within the context of choice, mm-hmm. of, of free agency, that isn't possible anywhere else. But that also then opens up the door for the possibility of suffering, for the possibility of heartache, for the possibility, you know, but all of those things allow for us to experience relationship. I mean, true intimacy is bred in difficult times, not in the the best times. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and often your most important conversations with your loved ones involve some conflict. True intimacy is is built in those moments. And you have to wonder if a world completely absent of suffering 
not one like heaven where we had already known suffering and then we are redeemed from it and you know we get to be in a in paradise but having never had an encounter with suffering at all ever if that would result in the best of all possible worlds and i think we've articulated pretty well that it just wouldn't okay so speaking of god's love let's talk about the difference between love and god's love with this next clip when we understand how we are loved by god it will begin to shift how we love god and not only that it'll begin to shift how we love others in first john chapter 4 John says this, dear friends, let us continue to love one another for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God for God is love. God is love was hijacked by the hippies as well. (laughs) God is love. Is this true? Absolutely. God is love. But remember what we talked about a few weeks ago, God's preeminent trait characteristic is his holiness. So his holiness comes, or his love comes from his holiness. He is holy so he can love us well. He is love because he is holy. So God is love. Yes, it's true. But, but remember what it said right before that. If anyone does not love, they do not know God. And it does not mean your kids, right? Because you should love your kids. It means the people that are hard to love. Because anybody can love the people who love you. What about the people who hate you? This is what it's talking about. And this is where the Beatles miss it because it says all you need is love. But let's be honest, there are some people in your world that are really hard to love, isn't there? I think the premise of Mel's point here depends on God's holiness adding structure and definition to love itself. But my question is, what really is the problem with reversing the order of these characteristics and saying that love and not holiness is the preeminent characteristic of God? What would a reversal like that lead to? What it leads to is license, and we see it all the time. Um, We love to create a God uh, who, you know, well, you know, God loves me. So it doesn't matter what I do, you know, and there's always a grain of truth in those things, right? God doesn't stop loving me based on my performance or he doesn't love me when my, more when my performance is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we put that above God's holiness, then, there, then there's no impetus for us then to be holy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it gives, it gives, gives way to license, um, at least that's that's the danger that I see. You guys want to chime in? Yeah, I mean, wow, it definitely takes all the punch out of love because it's just it it's based on an individual definition, not one that is supreme. And so, depending on our circumstances or uh, our culture, um, our upbringing, how, how we were raised, whatever, like that's how we define love, not based on. Okay, so if God is forgiving, people think forgiveness is pretty good, right? I mean, but we also oftentimes in our own human nature think that certain people deserve forgiveness and others don't. Mm -hmm. But a holy God says that all things can be redeemed, that forgiveness must be given freely in order to receive it. Mm -hmm. You know, and so like the depth is just gone from love itself if we if we if we reverse it away from holiness of God, the nature of who God is. Yeah, I've never really, I mean, I kind of understand the fear of holiness, the fear of a holy God, um, but I don't, okay, so sometimes you have people who think of God's holiness and they're, they kind of retract from it. Like they don't want to think of God as holy. 
And I think that the reason is because they, what they're doing essentially is they're grafting themselves onto God and they're thinking that God must be like me. But here's the problem with that. If you think that God is like you and you're satisfied with that and you're happy about that, you don't know yourself very well, or you haven't spent much time reflecting on your more nefarious and your darker motives because I don't want God to be like me. Imagine an omnipotent version of yourself with total agency over everything in the universe. Like that's terrifying to me. So holiness is an invitation to be better for ourselves. And it's also security that God is not going to do the terrible and the dark and the stupid things that we do, you know, onto us. So, yeah. You know, and I think that uh, we don't have the proper understanding of holiness either. Because we, the reason that we shrink back from God's holiness uh, is because understanding our sinfulness, we expect a holy God to be angry with us. Um, and it's not that God isn't angry about sin. He certainly is. He hates sin. But we expect him to be angry with us, right? We expect, which, which then negates his holiness, actually, right? So we, we are afraid of God's holiness because we expect him to be angry, but we only expect him to be angry because we misunderstand his holiness. Because it, holiness is about sinlessness. Mm-hmm. And if I react or you react, and I'm not talking about a righteous anger at this point. I'm not talking about an, uh, you know, like if I see injustice in the world and there's a there's a, a righteous anger or they when I was a kid they said righteous indignation, uh-huh. right? If there's not that thing that compels me to act like righteously to you know to uh, remedy injustice, to help the poor, to take you know that's that, that's a different kind of anger than what right. we're expecting yeah, from yeah. the Lord. What we what we expect is that God will react with the same anger that I would, right? That he's mm-hmm. going to be vindictive, but that's not who God is. In fact, that would negate his holiness. And if I under like if I understand my anger, right? If 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 somebody wrongs me, right? So which would be sin, right? If we're if we're talking about in terms of God, like my sin, I have wronged God. And so if someone sins against me, they wrong me, my anger makes me want to react toward them in vengeance. Mm -hmm. That's not holy. Mm -hmm. And we know it's not holy. Mm -hmm. We understand that for ourselves, but then we expect God to react the same way we do. So we misunderstand the nature of God's holiness. The fact that God is holy is really good news for us. Yes, for sure. So Pastor Mel remarked on uh, how embodying God's love means loving those who are hard to love, not just loving people who are, you know, your immediate family or people who it's it's natural to want to love them. So considering those who are hard to love, do you find yourself limiting your exposure to these kinds of people? And even being a pastor, does it still test your patience when you spend a lot of time in these environments? Yes. No, we're, we're just super naturally (laughs) endowed with patience because someone calls us pastor. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, um, I try not to avoid those kinds of interactions. I, I, I want to be really long suffering and really patient and all. But, but yeah, I'm just like anybody else, man. There are certain, there are some days it's like I, I, I can't deal with that today, you know. Uh, 
and I need grace for that. I need grace both to uh, to be kind when pe- when I'm confronted with a re- an interaction like that on the days that I really don't want to. I also need grace from the Lord for the days that like I just go and hide out so I don't have to. You know what I mean? Uh, because there are days that I, you just don't want to. Mm-hmm. Well, well, let me say this too. I, I don't think Jesus was a pushover either. And when people's behavior needed to be corrected, he corrected them out of love. Yeah. And so, uh, again, uh, I just, uh, before we moved to Summit, we, we spent almost 10 years in youth ministry. And listen, there's always that middle school boy that is hyperactive <laughs> and wants a show and wants to preach your message for you from the seats instead of from the stage. And uh, just, you know, just seems like the monkey on your back. But, um, you know, there is... S- uh, a great opportunity there, I guess, professionally looking back at some of those relationships. Yes. Where I said, okay, I have a, uh, professional duty to spend time with this person because I want the very best for them. When other people are like, I'm out, this is too much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But then also there's a point where you have to say, listen, I love you enough to tell you this, this is not acceptable. And your behavior is not pleasing to me, not, not going to help you out. And it's not pleasing to the Lord. And so it needs to stop. Yeah. And so like it, there's a, there's a certain, maybe a, a greater level of tolerance than maybe if, if I, if I wasn't operating in this role, but you still have to have that tough conversation. That that still is loving and not just showing um, tolerance to somebody, but actually kindness to somebody. Yeah. So is there a clear place where we can draw the balance here? Because I imagine it's especially useful for people who are trying to become more mature Christians to hear uh, people like yourselves who are in the office of pastor saying, look, there's some days where I just can't, I just don't want to deal with it. I can't, you know, I try to stay away from that. Um, but then Colin, you're also saying we want to have those difficult conversations. And so I would think that deferring towards not having the interaction, if having the interaction is going to make you say something unwise would be better. But then where do we draw the balance between that and also being okay with sitting in the discomfort? Like, how, is there a clear way to manage that? Or do you just guys just go by feel? Man, there's a whole lot there. Uh, I think one of the things that is important for us to do is set up healthy rhythms in our life in the first place. So if I am intentional about solitude and getting away from the noise and being alone with the Lord and, and setting up healthy rhythms in my life where I'm, where I'm taking Sabbath, right? Like, and in, in real Sabbath, like really resting in God's presence. When, if I am intentional about having times where I am doing that, where I am being recharged, where I am being refueled, uh, then that's going to give me uh, the strength that I need to deal with people on the difficult days. And, and so first would be that. The second would be there's nothing wrong with telling somebody, I'm sorry, I can't do that today. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and that doesn't mean put them off forever, but, but just say, Hey, I can't, I can't do that today. Let's set up a time to talk. Um, that gives you some time to prepare, to be ready, to be gracious. If you know, it's going to be a difficult interaction. Um, and then lastly, I mean, there are times, look, the, the interaction just happens and you're there and you've got to deal Mm -hmm. with it as it's presented to you in that moment. And in those moments, man, look, we are all should be 
trying and learning and leaning in and saying, Lord, I, I need you for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. Yeah. I agree. You have to be able to self-assess. Like, again, I'm not going to have a hard conversation with somebody before 9 a.m. Uh, be, not because of them. Maybe they'd love to meet with me before they go to work, but I don't do my best before right. 9 a.m. Yeah. yeah. If I'm hungry, if I'm tired, that is not the best time for me to have that hard conversation. So schedule it. Yeah. And and if, if it's not that important to them, then, hey, if they miss the appointment, make sure it's not you that's missing the appointment. But you've got to make sure that you are prepared, ready, uh, because you're responsible ultimately for what you say, especially as a pastor. The Lord is going to hold us accountable uh, so greatly uh, for the way we interact with people there. But that's so important. Can I just say one thing? He said Sabbath. I think we have a misunderstanding of Sabbath. And Todd hit the nail right on the head. Sabbath is not going to the lake with my family and spending all day there, spending all my money and creating more stress and anxiety, trying to impress everybody with the new boat that I just bought. Okay, I love going to the lake. If anybody out there is listening and you have a boat, (laughs) when it gets warm, please call me and my family and we would love to go out. But that is not my Sabbath. Your Sabbath is your time in the presence of God. Listen, somebody may say, well, I, you know, my wife won't let me go, you know, or my husband won't let me go, or I've got kids, I've got responsibilities. Then get up early and spend a couple hours with the Lord. And I say a couple hours because a lot of times it takes me that long just to get out of my own head, mm-hmm. to spend time in the presence of God. That is the time where he reveals your true heart. Yeah. And helps you kind of assess. That's really good, guys. I, I love the idea of self-assessment and knowing how you work best and when you work best and what your potential pitfalls are. And I also love the idea of having good rhythms and routines, both to build yourself up and to strengthen yourself and to fill your cup, but also to have something to look forward to on the other side of that hard conversation. Because you know, like, hey, I'm going to have this really hard conversation that might ruin my afternoon. But tomorrow morning, I'm going to be able to get up early and I'm going to be able to Uh, have my moment, you know, and so it gives you something to look forward to also, which I think is really great. So this next piece from Pastor Mel is going to talk about what it feels like to follow God when you can't see him. In Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the the children of Israel in captivity, and God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And this is what he says in Isaiah 30, 21. He says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. This is the way. Walk in it. This is what he's saying. He's saying, there are going to be times in your journey, you're not going to see me, but you're going to hear my voice. Have you ever been in that season before where you're like, God, I don't see what you're doing. I don't know where you're going. I would feel more comfortable if I could see you. And God's like, don't worry, I'm with you. And the evidence that I am with you, the evidence of my nearness and proximity to you is you can still hear my voice. As long as you can hear my voice, you're doing just fine. But God, I don't know what to do. You're you're doing fine. This is the way. Stick to it. No, no, no. Don't turn left here. Keep going. But the problem is we want to see where God is. God, you just go and then I'll follow you. When I think of this kind of pursuit, I think about persevering even when something doesn't feel like it's working. Now, as far as I can tell, so much of success and even familial stability is associated with consistency. But the definition of insanity is repeating the same thing continuously while expecting a different result. So when following God, how do we tell the difference between insanity and perseverance? And uh, maybe to add to that, do you think it's wise to keep pushing forward down a particular path, even when it feels tedious or maybe when it feels like it's not going to work? Depends. So all all of this, 
is predicated on developing an ear for God's voice. All of it. Because there are times in Scripture when God has called people to do things that Mm -hmm. looked insane, where there was no fruit, where there was no... I mean, Jeremiah, for example, (laughs) (laughs) right? God, I mean, God God calls Jeremiah and says, hey, I want you to go preach to these people. By the way, they're not going to listen, uh, and you're going to be imprisoned. And, you know, it, it, Jeremiah never had a single convert for, like, however many years of prophetic ministry that he, I mean, no, <laughs> zero. He was, he was O for life, right? And so it looks insane, but history bears out that he, you know, he heard the voice of God, that he was a prophet, that he, you know, um, it looked crazy. Um, I think it, about that almost every time I'm in a conversation where it's about like an innovative way to do church or an innovative way to share the gospel. Cause like, yeah, we want to be, do we want to be fresh with the gospel? I don't know. That, that's, that's even up for debate, I would say. But every time I think like, okay, well, such and such isn't bearing fruit or it's not really working. It doesn't, doesn't feel like it's doing what's supposed to do. I think about that. Yeah. And I think, well, maybe I'm just not pushing hard enough. Maybe I'm not staying the course well enough. Well, and it's not going to be so cut and dry. Of course, Todd just straight, straight up said, well, it depends. Um, I love it. (laughs) But you know, like even when the people of Israel left Egypt, right. And they went into the desert for 40 years that is ridiculous, but there was a very definite sign that God was leading them the entire time. And not only did he heal their bodies, but he had a consistent sign every day. Not only did he meet their needs, but there was a consistent sign every night. And their connection, even though their generation had to pass away, right, uh, before they could receive the promise, but uh, there was a definite sign there. Now, I'm not saying God is going to lead you every day with a pillar of cloud, or at night with a pillar of fire, but he will continue to provide if we pursue him and pursue him to lead us, asking the Holy Spirit every morning, this is a great practice, lead me today, give me discernment today, speak to me and let me pursue you and your ways instead of mine. That is the best prayer, most dangerous prayer too, because people might think you are literally insane because they can't see that pillar that is leading you. They can't see that promise, especially if they're not believers. But again, um, that, that is a... So many ministries have started that way. I think like, you know, they, they start out as a thought in one minister's head and, and the person's like, okay, I think this is going to work really well. Um, it seems to me like when you have a thought like that and then you present it to other ministers without actually doing anything yet, you just mm-hmm. kind of pitch it. The response, generally speaking, is like, uh, yeah, you go, <laughs> it'll be great. Mm-hmm. But yeah. then the thought is, well is it really going to work? And it's not until you pursue it faithfully and you really get yourself out there and you really make things happen and you really start to build things that people start to get on board with what it is that you're doing. And so most things I think that end up bearing fruit start out where it's like, I don't know where I'm being directed. There's no obvious sign that I need to go do this thing, but you know, I think that the more scripture that we internalize, probably the better we become attuned to hearing God's voice and kind of knowing what direction he wants us to walk in. 
But uh, yeah, it can be difficult sometimes. This is a difficult problem even in the corporate world because you have investors and you have people, businessmen and entrepreneurs who are starting companies and starting enterprises and you have to decide when to let it go or when to keep going because everybody's always saying it's almost a trope now like you know perseverance breeds success like you just got to just don't give up just keep yeah. trying just keep yeah. going and then there's like the sunk cost fallacy also like you know if you get so much sunk cost built into something then it's like oh i really don't want to let it go even if right. there is good evidence that you should let it go and do something mm -hmm. else that's yeah. a tough problem to solve and, and that's why i say that all of this is predicated on developing a sensitivity to the voice of god because what if you're doing something that by every measurable standard is succeeding and God is asking you to do something else? Yikes. Right? See, we, we often aim at fruitfulness when what we should be aiming at is faithfulness. Hmm. God, like, Jesus didn't say, well done, good and fruitful servant. That's right. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, there's a promise of fruitfulness, but it is it's, it, it comes after faithfulness. It comes after obedience. It comes, you know, and so like, you know, I, I've talked to, you know, it's always interesting to me as a pastor, and I can't say never because it does happen from time to time. But I am often struck by how rare it seems that God calls somebody to a smaller church mm -hmm, or God right. calls somebody to a less affluent area or God calls somebody. You know what I mean? Like it, it always it's interesting to me how it appears that the call of God 90 percent of the time is looks a lot like upward mobility. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And, and I, I'm not I'm not trying to throw shade on anybody. I'm, I'm just saying like. I don't see that as the pattern in Scripture. The call of God in Scripture, more often than not, means me leaving something, means me sacrificing something, means me laying something down so that I might, you know. Um, and it, at least in the West, the the call of God doesn't seem to take on that form very often, and. And again, I'm not trying to throw shade. I, I just, it's just something I wrestle with and go, mm -hmm. you know, and, and so I think, yeah, well, fa yeah, faithfulness has to be our aim. What's going to convince people more uh, of, of your devotion to a God who provides and open the door any better uh, for God to provide for you than that role that you just, you know, that you just mentioned, the, the role of obedient faithfulness? Um, and accepting again the harder things of life, because if if someone says oh, I'm a follower of Jesus, and again maybe there are some um, some folks that think that okay, so if you're faithful to God, then you're just going to keep climbing and climbing. You're mm -hmm. a bigger house, nicer things. Mm -hmm. We don't need to get into that today. But it is a clear message to unbelievers, those on the outside, when you operate in faithfulness and you don't have all the glorious things of this world, mm -hmm. yet you are still faithful. But also what a great opportunity for God to swoop in. I mean, if you don't have everything that you could possibly want or even need, mm -hmm. 
but he can swoop in and he can provide. What a great sign that is to the people that you aren't necessarily preaching the gospel to, but they see your lifestyle. When you take a leap of faith into what from by outward circumstances looks like a bad deal or like something that maybe you shouldn't, doesn't make worldly sense and you do it confidently and boldly and then things start to work like, man, that's so attractive to people. And here's the thing. I struggle with this too, because I don't know whether or not whether something is working should even be my metric because I, I can look around and I see what mm-hmm. generally works. You know, I can see styles that other ministers have that is becoming more and more popular, whatever it is. And if I don't feel called to do that, or I feel called to do something different, I wrestle with that, that issue because it's like, what am I just going to be screaming into the void here? Or like, is there like, where, where does, where do you start gaining traction with what it is that you're trying to do? If it's not also at least a little bit popular or at least working in some way, but I can see, cause like the Jeremiah thing, man, like, like no converts right. to think about that is it's crazy to think about, but it is like an, it puts the focus internal. It puts the focus between you and God. Mm -hmm. fundamentally instead of between you and everyone else. And so that's really good stuff. Okay. So this final piece here is Pastor Mel talking about how trusting God is a remedy for chaos. And the gospel according to the Beatles says life is chaos. It is all just out of control. That's the way it feels. The gospel says life is chaos without God. And some of you are pushing back. You're going, wait a second. Mel, um, I'm a Christian and life still feels pretty chaotic. I get you. I I totally understand that. I'm I'm with you on that. Let me read a couple verses to you. In Proverbs chapter three, it says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do and he will show you which path to take. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. That's what the King James says. This is what it's saying. God will direct and order your path when you trust him. When you submit yourself to his lordship, he will take care of the next steps. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. He will direct you. He will lead you if you will be obedient to who he is and what he wants you to do. It doesn't mean you're always going to understand it. It doesn't mean you're always going to see it. But God is a God of order. It says in Psalm 37, 23, the Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their life. The steps of the righteous are ordered by God is what it says here. Okay, so I'm going to make a claim off of this and then I'd be interested to know whether or not you can dismantle the claim or whether or not there's any validity to it and then what to do if there is validity to it. So it seems to me like the church often misinterprets verses like these to mean that their intellectual complacency is excused by their faith in Jesus. Uh, but I actually think that embracing ignorance uh, is more like a sin of omission and further separates you from God. I think high regard for wisdom is borne out by the early church fathers like Aquinas, Augustine, and Origen. Um, now, these men were genius caliber academics, so much so that their pursuit of knowledge gave birth to what became the university. The value of wisdom, I think, is also explicitly encouraged in scripture itself. For instance, Proverbs chapter eight. So how do we depend on God instead of our own understanding without falling into ignorance? First of all, is there that misinterpretation in the church of verses like these? I think in, I think in some, uh, 
some arenas for sure. Uh, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's always the case. Um, but I think it's a, it's just certainly a danger. Um, but I, I don't know that I would say it's universal in the church. Yeah. I don't think that the, uh, the church would definitely would say anything that people would necessarily crave ignorance. But again, it, it does call the question, what is the most predominant wisdom that you seek? Um, the wisdom that's should be our priority is the wisdom of the truth of the word of God and wisdom given by his Holy Spirit. Um, that does trump whatever worldly wisdom. But again, I think we honor God when we learn. I think we honor God when we um, live our lives according to a biblical worldview, according to his standards, according to his wisdom and leading, but are aware of our surroundings. Paul was excellent at understanding. Um, man, he was an intelligent person. Definitely not someone that you would call unlearned or uneducated, maybe like the disciples were. Um, but he balanced that well out of obedience to the wisdom coming from the Holy Spirit uh, over the other. Yeah. Well, and so I think um, it might be good for us to maybe differentiate between knowledge and wisdom in, in this moment as well. So I can, for example, I, I know that it is good for me to exercise, right? That's knowledge that I possess. Wisdom then, though, would be the application of that knowledge. And I think that we have often in the church equated knowledge with wisdom. Well, if I just know enough scripture, or if I just know enough theology, or if I just know, if I can answer the questions, mm. the, you know, the right way, if I have the right answers to the questions, uh, then, then I'm, I'm golden. That doesn't equate to wisdom. Mm -hmm. Sure. Having the, you know, being able to get an A on the test is not the application of that knowledge. Yeah. Right. And so I think we should seek the application of that knowledge as much or more so than the knowledge itself. Yeah. Nietzsche called people like that, the all knowledge types, bloodless scholars, essentially, because they just, okay, I'm going to, all I'm going to do is study and there's not going to be any praxis. I'm never going to take it out into the world. I'm never going to use it for, you know, the betterment of society or myself or anything else. Um, okay. So maybe I should reframe this. Maybe it's not a craving of ignorance. Maybe, you know, Christians aren't waking up every morning and looking for ways to be more ignorant, <laughs> but it, it seems to me like at least an indifference towards wisdom. I, I don't know how political propaganda should be working in the Christian church if it were not this case, if this were not true. It should be the case that, that, that the church is the last place where that kind of dictum mm -hmm. should take hold. We should be the salt and light which preserves what is good and the light to guide the world. Um, I'm not seeing that as much in yeah. the Western church. And I'm actually... I, I've met Christians who defend that position, the position of indifference towards wisdom, trying to use verses like these. Well, I don't need to learn because it's all Jesus, baby. I just have Jesus. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, that's true in a sense, but it's also true that wisdom should be highly valued and mm -hmm. that not having something, not knowing something actually has real world consequences on your life and on the life of others. Just think of it, you know, whether you're listening to this or even just here in this room, just take a survey of the pain that you've gone through in life. How much of that pain could have been completely avoided if you had known something that you didn't know at the time? And it's not all the pain, but it's certainly a significant amount of it. 
It's like yeah. if, I, if I had this piece in place, I could have totally avoided that. And we don't think about this kind of stuff because tragedies averted always go unnoticed. You know, we think about like, okay, I don't know. I actually don't know how many tragedies I've averted from having pieces of wisdom in place before I encountered such a thing. I don't know because I can't count them. Yeah. But I do know when I look back at all the different things that I've suffered, so many of them would have been avoided had I had what I needed to have in that moment. And I think there's a massive disconnect there in the modern church. And maybe it's not the modern church. Maybe like Todd, you made a really interesting point a couple of weeks ago about how literacy is new, you know, mm-hmm. and for vast epics of time, we just didn't have that. So I don't know, maybe we aren't dumber now than we used to be. Like, I, I don't know what to think of this. <laughs> yeah. So um, the thing that I keep thinking of, the thing that keeps coming to mind for me is this, that um, trusting in the fact that God is in control is not an excuse for disobedience. Mm-hmm. If, if I know that God's instruction or command for me is that I seek wisdom, if I know that God's instruction and command for me is that I not be ignorant concerning the devices of the enemy, if I know that God's instruction and command for me is that I hide his word in my heart that I might not sin against him, if I know God's instruction and command for me is that I love the law of the Lord and that, you know, um, that I, that I seek its wisdom, that I search it out, that I know it, it, that knowing that God is in control in spite of what I don't know is not an excuse for disobedience. And I think that's what happens when people go, hey, you know, hey, God's in control. It's all Jesus, baby. You know, that mm-hmm. when we have that kind of cavalier attitude, we're excusing our disobedience. Mm-hmm. And, and the second thing I would say is this, a deep knowledge, a thorough knowledge of God's word, a thorough knowledge of how, who he has revealed himself to be in scripture should only serve to increase my confidence in his sovereignty, not lessen it. So mm-hmm. why in the world would I shy away from that? Right. Why in the world would I ever uh, think that there were not something to gain from knowing God's yeah. word and then being able to see the world through that lens. I mean, I I just don't understand why we would ever think that there was an excuse for that. Yeah. I love this because what you've done is you've opened up a door into the pursuit of wisdom that doesn't require the value necessarily of wisdom itself or wisdom for its own sake, or let's just say knowledge for its own sake. All you need to value is faithfulness at that point. If you know that it's God's instruction that you study his word and that you get to closer to him through that and that you pursue wisdom through the scriptures, if you know that, then all you need to do is value being faithful to his command rather than valuing knowledge and intelligence itself. Then you can get there without having a high regard for scholarly things, let's say. The pursuit of knowledge without God is the impetus for the fall. I mean, it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for a reason. Mm -hmm. It was this pursuit of knowledge outside of God. God was not concerned with Adam and Eve not knowing the difference between good and evil. They already knew. There were two trees there. God said, you can eat this one. You can't eat from this one. Adam and Eve already understood right and wrong. That wasn't what God was trying to protect them from. What God was trying to protect them from was the pursuit of knowledge outside of him. Wow. 
It was, it was, it's the pride that causes us to say, I can know this outside of God. I can, I can decide for myself what is good, what is evil, what is ultimate. I get to define truth. Yeah. That, man. that is, that is the single <laughs> definition of sin. It is the fall of man in a nutshell. It's the thing we're struggling most with in our culture right now too. Like, I, yeah. And it's, man, so like, it's not, so we have to be cautious here about knowledge and about gain of intelligence. Let's say like it, it, there's always that draw to somebody said that rationality without God is like straight out of the mouth of hell. I don't know who said that, but it's somewhere. Somebody can find it. <laughs> but uh, man, that's that's great. That's really good. Uh, do we have anything to add to that? Honestly, like, I don't know. I think I mean, that might be a good place to land the plane here. That is killer. Drawing people back into relationship. Some of the best wisdom that you if you think back, even just from, from human beings, people that you've had relationship with it, that lasts, you know, because you know, they value you and you value that relationship that lasts a long time. I get lots of wisdom from random people, even on Sunday mornings (laughs) to let me know what would be better for me to do, or might be a really good decision to adjust. And I'll be honest. I, I only value that some of those conversations just the tiniest little bit. Thank you for sharing that. I appreciate your heart. That's the value. That's it. Not, yeah. not the wisdom. But outside of relationship, outside that has very little value, wisdom. But in relationship to the Lord, man, that means a lot. That's lasting. I love the idea there too, Colin, of like having the humility to know that the thing that you need to know could come at you from anyone. And it doesn't matter if it's like a day one Christian or a little kid, like somebody could say something to you that is like, that's what you needed. Mm -hmm. And so, man, you better be paying attention and you better have the humility to listen to others and to be willing to adjust your worldview and all the rest. Like that's, that's good stuff. Hey guys. uh, Thank you. Thank you, Colin and Todd. And uh, thank you guys for listening. We will see you in the next episode. I hope you all appreciated that incredible truth bomb Todd dropped at the end of this episode. As we wait for the smoke to clear, I can tell you that next week we will discuss part five of the Gospel According To. I believe part five will be the final message in this series. As always, if you find this content valuable, please rate and review the podcast wherever you listen to it. Don't forget to subscribe at summitpodcasts.church forward slash subscribe. This is your home base for all things Summit Audio. Whether you're in Blairsville, Indiana, or anywhere else in the Summit community, I hope you know we all love you, we appreciate you, and we will see you in the next episode.